This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome back to Jamie All Over. Today, I am joined by your Bish therapist, Melissa Reich. Can you give a little background about yourself? Yes. Thank you, Jamie. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me here. I'm truly honored. I adore you. So I'm just grateful to be here. Yes. So I am a therapist. I went to Penn State University. I have my bachelor's degree in psychology and I also minored in sociology. And then I went and got my master's degree. So I have my master's degree in clinical psychology as well. I've been in the field for about 23 years, and I've had a ton of different jobs, inpatient, outpatient, addictions, mental health. So yeah, I've had a big, big career, which I'm really fortunate. Amazing. And I wanted to get a professional on with me for this episode, which is part two of an episode that I think we may need to add a little bit of a disclaimer or a trigger warning before we get started. What, yes. what do you typically say when you discuss these topics? So my typical disclaimer is the topics that we are about to discuss um, are for entertainment purposes only. And I do not know any people that we're talking about. I'm not anyone's client. We're not diagnosing. We are here to give broad strokes on some really significant topics that require advocacy and using our voice. So the other thing that I would say is that, again, trigger warning for me is just that we are going to be covering some tough topics, sexual abuse and domestic violence. For me, a trigger warning is really important, right? Because we want to give people the freedom to understand and make their own decisions about what content they take in. And I have a lot of trauma survivors who follow me who you know, when I put a trigger warning in my episodes, they really appreciate it because they can then make their best choice about 
is it best for me to listen or not? So if this is fresh for you, I recommend, I appreciate the support. I'm sure you do too, but you know, do what's best for your mental health and wellness. Yes. And thank you for all of that. I think that will help those who are listening. I recently learned how important that is and how important it is to make sure we're ready to even hear and consume this type of information, depending on where we are in our recovery process. And it was interesting because I actually had a therapy appointment this past week. It was on Monday. Today is Thursday. So four Mm -hmm. days ago. And I've been in and out of therapy for the past several years, initially working on some DV issues. Mm -hmm. And I've discussed that a little bit before on here about my own story. I'm not going to go into too much detail today because I think we have bigger things to talk about, more broad strokes, like you said. But that was something I acknowledge. I still need to work on this, even though this was years ago. It's still coming up in new relationships. And even though I went to court and I prevailed in court and I finally spoke up and felt how great that actually feels, that process was still so one of the hardest things I've been through. And I acknowledged that I needed therapy for that. And then when I was diagnosed with ADHD last year, I said, okay, I want to learn how to best handle this too. I did some amazing cognitive behavioral therapy work on that. And I'm feeling a lot better about that. And I've focused on that for the last year. But Mm -hmm. recently, it's very interesting because in the media, and I've been watching a couple documentaries lately, one called American Nightmare, the other one called The Truth About Jim. and They're both about sexual assault and women in these documentaries were raped and other awful things were happened to them. And the similar thing that I saw coming up was that they were victims, but they were not believed. And not only were they not believed, but they were made fun of in the media and they were bashed and they were told that what they're speaking up about is so inappropriate or they just want attention. And it was a wake up call for me between last week and even this week when I had my therapy appointment, because I was like, why am I so triggered by all of this? And I've I've been triggered for a while now about things that I mentioned last week that I was told. And I was like, I really need to dig deep and figure out why am I being so triggered? Mm -hmm. It was keeping me up at night, still is. So for the first time in all of these years that I've been in therapy, for the first time, I finally said it out loud that I needed to work on trauma relating to sexual assault and sexual abuse. And it's insane to me that my whole life, I've pushed those things down thinking like it was no big deal, not realizing how it's been affecting me in my everyday life. And I think from the responses that I've gotten, Even just the little that I was able to say last week, it made people have conversations with friends or discuss stuff that they've pushed down as well. And they're realizing they need to heal also. So Mm -hmm. I am in no way an expert on this. I'm just starting my healing journey in trauma therapy. Mm -hmm. But even just saying it this week to my therapist and even just like getting started, I feel so much lighter. And it's a very difficult subject for me to talk about. This is a really hard episode for me to do. So I'm so glad you're here. Of course. I'm going to try to not cry, but. Well, um, can I stop you for a second? I just want to say it's okay to cry. 
I think that crying is actually a very important part of the process. And I am honored to be here with you to hold space for you as you process, because what you're doing is so intensely scary, but it's also very brave. And I'm honored to be here with you, to walk with you as we talk about this. And I got you. Thank you. I appreciate that. So those documentaries that I mentioned, I know you had watched American Nightmare. And for those of us that have been through things and not been believed or been made fun of, Mm. I think it's just, it's so frustrating to see that happen to that woman. They called her gone girl and even her boyfriend corroborated her story and she still was not believed. I would Mm -hmm. love to get into the psychology of that when victims do finally speak out and that is so hard to do. When they do, they face so much more opposition. And then on top of that, those who maybe have not spoken out yet, they will see this happening to them and it discourages them from speaking out as well. So mm-hmm. I would love to hear your take on the psychology of the public and even like family members, partners, friends, not believing them, not taking it seriously and almost making fun of them as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to be honest that as I shared with you, Jamie, I'm a professional, but I'm also a patient. I have complex PTSD, so I understand both sides of it. And as a person as a human, the rage that I feel with how women and men too, people who come forward, the denigration that they receive, it's just disgusting. And as a fierce advocate, I will use my voice and my platform to speak against this. The answer to the question is a little complex, but I'm going to give some broad strokes about some things underlying. Okay. So women being quick to blame and shame other women. This actually happened on one of my posts where I talked about this topic. So it's a couple of things. We tend to minimize our own trauma, right? So as you mentioned, some of us have been so traumatized and we haven't had the space or safety or whatever it is to process that. But it doesn't mean that it goes away, right? So the complex trauma, when it is not properly processed, it comes out sideways. Like that's what we like to say, comes out sideways. And so if I have a hard time processing my trauma, when I see another woman come forth, I minimize her because I'm also minimizing me, right? So that's one component. Number two is that patriarchy truly uses women as tools of the patriarchy. So when we see other women come forward and as a woman, we want to tear her down, there is some internalized misogyny and shame and guilt. Those moments where maybe we were blamed, we kind of project that onto other people. And for me, why it's important to talk about the psychology of this is that this is why people don't come forward. And the thought of people like you and other people who are listening to this holding on to something so painful and being afraid that speaking your truth will be worse than what you went through, it's I won't stand for it. So the last thing that I'm going to say in regards to why this happens, okay? So there's a cognitive concept called cognitive dissonance which is essentially a psychological phenomenon when a person holds two contradictory beliefs. 
it's really complex, but humans, what we try to do is when we have two contradicting beliefs, we struggle internally with how to resolve that. And sometimes resolving cognitive dissonance means I can't sit with my own discomfort with how I've heard you be treated. So I'm going to either ignore it. I'm going to say this was your fault because of X, Y, Z, which it isn't, just to be clear, never your fault. Healthy individuals can look at contradictory information and reassess their opinions. But there are some folks with some personality profiles that they are just not capable of that. And so then it comes across as, again, denying, blaming, shaming, all of that. Yes. And vegans like myself and animal activists, we are very familiar with cognitive dissonance going on with those who oppose our nonviolence attitude. Right. Let's hit on some of the reasons why people don't come forward and then how we can help them when they do and just be better as a society, as partners, as friends. So Mm -hmm. I received a lot of DMs and feedback after the last episode. And one woman had said when she told her husband that she had been raped, he said to her, don't ever tell that story to anybody else. Mm -hmm. And she immediately felt shame. And then another, I heard another story of a woman coming forward and telling her friend and her friend laughed at her. And it was because it was 14 years later. And she's like, why would you be talking about it now 14 years later? So how can people have better reactions when people (laughs) in their life maybe do come forward? Yeah, that's such a good question. And to those people who submitted that, I am sorry, because none of that is true. It doesn't matter if it happened four seconds ago, four days ago, 40 years ago. It is awful. It is trauma. It is pervasive. And it has statistically, it is shown to have long lasting impacts. Number one. Number two, in the situation with the husband, I'm going to use that as an example of sometimes people who love us are so hurt and have such a hard time hearing something about somebody that they love that the reaction becomes a projection of their own inadequacy discomfort. I'm assuming that woman's husband doesn't maybe know how to deal with emotions really well. And so an appropriate response, right? Because that's what we're talking about here. What is an appropriate response is when someone tells you something like this, it is okay to be shocked. And as humans, we are going to have a multitude of feelings. However, what we have to do is acknowledge to the person talking to us and telling the story and saying, maybe it means acknowledging, wow, this is hard for me to hear. I do not want that to impact your voice. So please tell me what I can do to help. And really the answer is listening to people's story with empathy, without judgment, and honestly, maybe not even asking any questions. I think sometimes the greatest gift that we can give to people we love is just the gift of listening, understanding, and not coming from a place of judgment. And then acknowledging as a human, right, I imagine this woman's husband would have a lot of emotions about that. But had he said, wow, this is really hard for me to process. I want to take a minute to be my best self, to be able to listen. But I want you to be clear that what you're telling me is valuable. So it's okay if people need a minute, but sometimes, not sometimes, a lot of times, Humans don't know how to just be. 
for somebody, a friend, a partner, what have you, out of their own discomfort. Okay. And even if it's a stranger, someone they don't know on the internet, do you think it's better for people to just not say anything? I mean, I think I'm answering my own question rather than saying, I want proof or I don't believe this person because of X, Y, and Z. They truly don't know. And a lot of these times there isn't going to be proof, especially if it's verbal abuse, mental abuse. And a lot of times with the intimate partner situations, Mm -hmm. we still stay in those relationships for a long time. So we're covering for them. So there is no proof at that point. Sure. We're not trying to gather evidence. So Mm -hmm. this idea that victims need to prove it, what can you say about that? Yeah, I think it is such, uh, can I curse? Yes. (laughs) I think it is such societal bullshit that we've adopted this policy of when a, a victim comes forward, well, what did you do to cause this? That's the knee-jerk reaction. Yeah. So I wrote here in my notes in all caps, just don't say anything, right? If you can't believe someone, which that says everything about you and nothing about them, but if you can't believe someone or you're having a hard time digesting it, just don't say anything because the backlash, the words that these people read and the criticisms... It takes a piece of our soul that further complicates processing the trauma, right? Because we think, well, if we say something and we speak up and this is what we're getting, why would I talk about it? And then that can turn a a PTSD response into a complex PTSD response. So yes, A, believe victims, right? I mean, and these are people too who might I'm going to guess who have had something happen to them and have who have had people respond a similar way, right? Like, oh, I don't believe you or oh, this or oh, that. So the projection of it and the societal tendency to make victims prove, right, which is just absurd, because to your point, a lot of violence that happens, whether it's an intimate relationship, sexual violence, whatever, you cannot see with the naked eye. You can't. Yeah. But the psychological impacts that I've seen treating survivors are so significant and so far reaching. And that's the thing. I live with a lot of invisible illness. I have a chronic cancer and a lot of health issues. And so I get treated with a lot of invalidation, with a lot of, well, you don't look sick or, well, you're walking just fine. And it's like, well, my. I do. And I look great. My injuries can't be seen to the naked eye. So whether it's invisible illness or being a survivor of abuse, hear my voice clearly when I say you are valid. And if you're talking to people and you're getting those negative responses, you're not talking to the right people. And that's hard to hear because some of those people who may not be the right people are who you thought was your best friend or your partner or what have you. Yeah. I think another aspect of it for me personally is denial or not realizing what happened to me was not my fault. A lot of situations involving sexual assault, it may happen when a woman is intoxicated or out doing something. In my case, I was a teenager. I snuck out of the house. I got in my friend's car. She wasn't old enough to have a, a license to drive. She used her parents' car. We went into Brooklyn, New York, two girls from Jersey going into Brooklyn, hanging out with her boyfriend at the time who was a drug dealer. 
And I had met this boyfriend of hers, her, it was his cousin. I had never met him before. And he got me into a room and attempted to rape me. I was fortunate in that even though I was assaulted, it didn't get to the point of, I guess, quote unquote, rape. But later on in the news, I saw his sketch and I saw a story about him that he had then gone on to kill his pregnant girlfriend and then himself. And me as a teenager, being in a room alone with this person, and at the time thinking, well, I'm not going to speak up for several reasons. One, I snuck out. I shouldn't have been doing that. I don't want my parents to know that I did that. It was my fault. I put myself in that situation, hanging out with a drug dealer, hanging out with people like that. And I just never spoke up. And then I internalized all these years thinking to myself, like, wait, if I spoke up, maybe this murder wouldn't have happened. This woman, her baby would still be alive. This is the one thing I spoke about to my therapist this week. There are other instances like this with me as women. We just think like, okay, I was drunk. It was my fault. It is what it is. And we move on with our lives and we internalize this and don't Mm -hmm. realize. But that trauma stays in our bodies. Our body is our home. And we were violated. Yes. And it stays with us and it comes out in so many different ways. Yeah. I would like maybe you to explain to women who think like, I, no, it's fine. I was drunk. I, I'm not considering this rape. What do you say to people who have those experiences in their past? Well, first, I just want to give you a lot of credit because what you're doing right now is really hard. And I just give you a ton of fucking credit. Number one, you're amazing. Number two, the fallacy of women bringing this on themselves because of being intoxicated or what they're wearing is absolute bullshit. Now, it is perpetuated by society, right? It really is. But theoretically, women should be able to go out butt-ass naked, drunk on whatever substances they want to use and have the right to safety, period. And one other important thing I want to speak to, because I heard this when you were talking, is that an attempted rape versus a completed rape is the same trauma. If I'm being honest, it's the same trauma because here's what I want to say, because when whether it's attempted or completed, your sense of safety is permanently impacted in that moment. Your sense of your nervous system regulation is forever impacted. Your brain chemistry is altered by that experience. And when it comes to statistics of sexual assault and rape, the completed and attempted, they're they're the same statistics. I know. So, mm -hmm. So I just, I want you to hear this and I want other people listening to hear that whether it was attempted, completed, there's a lot of different situations. Your experiences are valid. The trauma is sudden. And then what happens is when your sense of safety is gone, right? And it's such a violation. And then it it triggers all these things in terms of, I don't have power and control over my body, right? My body isn't mine anymore. And then what happens when we don't want to talk about it, it stays here. But more importantly, it stays in our body. 
there's a, a book called The Body Keeps the Score, and it is about how our trauma, unprocessed trauma, is stored in our bodies. So you're not crazy. People listening to this aren't crazy. You're a human who was impacted significantly, and everything that you've said makes a ton of sense. Now, it's awful, and you need to do work and give yourself the gift of working through that. But like you said, it's such a complex response that women have to just zip it, keep it in, hold it in. And I believe too, a lot of chronic health conditions, myself included, are from years of overstimulated nervous system functioning from unresolved trauma. I am proof of that. Women have so many autoimmune issues and it's from this trauma. So I just, I want you to hear this so clearly and other people listening to this is that it all makes sense. None of it's okay. Please do not blame yourself. Did we all make wild decisions as teenagers? Listen, I'm going to be honest. I was a wild teenager. I would joke with my friends that like my mom would think I was sleeping over somewhere and I'd be in a field dying from alcohol poisoning. When we go through things as a teenager and then you you can act out, right? Because I'm assuming that before this happened, there was some stuff brewing and some things happening for you that maybe weren't acknowledged. And our behaviors aren't because we're terrible people who are not deserving of love. They're just the human condition is hard and our brains and our bodies do things that sometimes it feels like it, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but it really does. Yeah. And that's why it hit me so hard when I was diagnosed with ADHD, because I realize now all of these situations that caused me so much trauma, I can see how it's all connected. Why was I risk-taking? Why did I even put myself in that position? It's because my brain is different and I needed those situations for some sort of stimulation. And I was very rebellious And Mm -hmm. it went completely unnoticed by my parents, my guidance counselor, my teachers. Mm -hmm. Nobody realized it. And Mm -hmm. so that was like a grieving process last year. Grieving for that teenager, for all the stuff that I had gone through, dropping out of high school. And just thinking there was something wrong with me and blaming myself for all of these things that, that happened. And again, and I'm not even, I, I know to not even blame the ADHD. It's not my fault no, that it's not. these things happened to me. And it's after not. my first experience this week in, in discussing this and just opening the door to it, I want people to know that night I was watching a sitcom with my daughter, one that we have been binging for like the past few weeks. And I never found it that funny. But that night, I laughed harder than I've ever laughed before. And it's continuing. I'm still laughing so much harder. I have felt like such a weight has been lifted off of me. So if anyone is wondering why should they open these old wounds or why should they look at this differently and and realize, no, I shouldn't blame myself. I should give myself that gift of working on it. I just want to let people know I only just started and I already can see how this has impacted my whole life. I've been numb my whole life, not able to feel things. I can like see glimpses now of what bliss feels like. And I think you can relate to that as well. I can. Yeah. So, and by the way, those glimpses, they're called glimmers. So a glimmer is the 
an opposite of a trigger. They're the moments of pure joy and happiness that survivors get to feel after processing some trauma, and they are worth every single moment of pain of processing. So I will share briefly. I So I had a cancer when I was 17 that I wasn't supposed to survive and lots of trauma before that. And nobody ever asked me how I was feeling or what was going on. And so I just kept it in and internalized it. And then when I was in my 30s, I got diagnosed with a secondary cancer that I have now. And this cancer is the kind that you have forever. And so during the pandemic, I had to start undergoing cancer treatment for my second cancer during the pandemic, which was the absolute. It just it created this pressure valve that I honestly had a breakdown. I completely I just couldn't function. And I was seeing a therapist who couldn't help me. You and I have talked about that. I was seeing a therapist who I knew couldn't help me as evidenced by her cooking a brisket during one of our sessions. I shared that with you, but I'll share that with the world too. Unbelievable. Yes. And I truly knew that my trauma coming to a head, I had two choices. I could either give up or I could crawl through mud and broken glass to save my life one more time. And I did. And I found a therapist who I still see to this day. And I did three years of the most intense trauma work of my life. And I will tell you, there were days that I left therapy feeling worse than when I went in. That's normal. It's scary to think about really as humans, what we try to do is we just try to avoid our pain because it's so awful. And when you have so much of it, right, and it's so intense, it feels like it's going to kill you, but I promise it isn't. So giving yourself the gift of trauma healing and recovery, and it's not like once you're recovered, you're done, but I've gotten through the storm of it and now I'm in that maintenance mode. But I promise to anyone listening, you have to be confident in your ability to survive that journey. And if you're not confident, I'll be confident for you. Jamie, you're capable. Everyone listening to this is capable to do the work. And truly, that is the best act of self-love. Yeah. Another reason I think myself and others may not speak up is because we don't want to be pitied. We don't want people to feel sorry for us. We don't want people to think there's something wrong with us. We don't want people to think we're damaged. And that would be my hesitation in even putting this out, even though I'm doing it, is that I don't want to receive 100 DMs from people feeling sorry for me. I don't... Right. I call myself a survivor, not a victim, mm-hmm. but those are just words. And I just don't want people to look at me differently or feel sorry for me. Right. And I was thinking about how to respond because that is such a tough one, which I understand because as someone who's had cancer twice, I get that like head tilt, like, oh, when it feels so patronizing, like, yeah. can you just please stop? You're making this worse. But here, truly, whether it's Whatever you're recovering from, whether it's a health issue, substance abuse, sexual abuse, whatever, we have to learn not to take on other people's responses. We can't let ourselves be defined by people are going to respond poorly to both of us after this. We'll get DMs and some of them will be great and some won't be. And then some will try to be great, but they just can't get there. 
the greatest thing that I would suggest is just do it anyway, knowing that the responses that you're going to get, you can't use them to assess your value or your validity, if that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Okay. We have to be our best advocates. And really, that's what I'm all about teaching people to do. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. And it honestly only takes one person, one person to believe you or understand you or be there for you. And that's all I had when I took my ex to court over some DB issues. Right. That was the most stressful draining process because here you are going against someone who's making up lies about you and saying you're just doing it because you're jealous because he's in a new relationship. But not only him, but his current girlfriend at the time got on the stand and lied and said he wasn't abusive towards her when I knew he had been and that I was just jealous and I wanted him back, which I absolutely did not. And then his mom, I witnessed him be abusive to his mom. He spit in her face. He's an ex-Marine. He has PTSD. She told me stories of when he first got home, he would attack her and she had to hide under the bed and he still pulled her out from the bed to attack her. She's told me those stories. The time she was out in California visiting us and he spit in her face. I met up with her to console her after that without him there. And she said, you need to run and not walk away from my son. However, fast forward and she gets on the stand and completely denies these incidents and says, that, I'm like, I'm, am I in a twilight zone? And it's just something that I want victim survivors to be aware of. All the opposition that they're going to face. Mm-hmm. And I was feeling so low and so down in the court. The hearings lasted months. It wasn't just a one-time thing. And I was in the Orange County family court. And I remember going to the bathroom. And there's maybe six or seven stalls total, but there was only one stall where there was writing all over the walls. And it was from women. It's going to make me cry. Oh, God, it might make me cry, too. And the staff left it there. I knew that they left this one stall there for those who needed it. And I happened to walk into this stall. And it said, don't give up. I'm finally free. And it was just all their stories on the wall in this one stall. And that w- that's what I needed to keep going. I read that all and it gave me the strength to go back in there. And those women weren't even there. And it was just that encouragement and seeing that knowing that other people had been through that. And then there was a point, one of the times in court, somehow a TV advocate came and she sat down next to me and she said, I'm here for you. And I didn't set this up. I don't know who set it up. It was like an angel. And she sat right behind me. She put her hand on my shoulder. And she said, I believe you and I'm here for you. And I had no one in the court. He had his friend, his girlfriend, his mom. I had no one in there because no one witnessed it, what he did to me. Mm-hmm. And the fact that this stranger came there to support me, again, I broke down. And I just felt so grateful that someone believed me. And I prevailed. When I left, I sat in my car and I talked to my dad who's passed away. And it's like one of those moments that I'll never forget. Because the heart of that was, I advocated for myself. And I so appreciate those people, like that woman in the courtroom that believed me. And it does only take one person. And so, sorry. If there's anything I can express, it's to believe the victims. 
you might be what they need to keep going. (sighs) Sorry. Never apologize. And this is part of what gets put into our heads, right? Sorry. Sorry for emoting. Sorry. Yeah. Jamie, if you weren't crying about this, I would be concerned for you. Okay. So this is a healthy response to systemic, absolute invalidation. It's it's like the abuse is bad enough, and then it's everything after that. It, it's the same as the abuse, right? It's like it's being victimized all over again, not being believed, not being heard, not being supported. And it makes me so angry. I wish I knew you then. I would have come to support you because I just feel that your message is so valid. And when you talk about the the bathroom stall, what I literally got goosebumps. And it, while on the one hand, it's so amazing. It's also such a sad example of think about the the women who went in there and had to do that. And why did they, right? Because they were like you. They didn't have anybody. They were being gaslit. They were being unsupported, invalidated, all of that. And they knew, like you knew, this is not right. And so what we're speaking about today is the equivalent of what is written on that bathroom stall. Yeah. And we are here to raise, I'm here to raise you up, although I'm not your therapist. I'm here to raise you up. I'm here to raise them up. And I'm here to let people know that please keep going because you are not crazy. You are not alone. If you're not supported in the moment, sometimes we don't have, we're not able to have those people around us. And guess why that is? Because when we're in a domestic violence situation, there's isolation. Yeah. Right. There's isolation. The gaslighting is not only from the perpetrator, it's from the system. And I think that is what is the most upsetting of all. So I just want you to know I hear you. You're amazing. You're brave and courageous. And I am so proud of you. Thank you. Why is it important for people to speak up when I have a friend who has a story to tell, but she thinks she won't be believed? What would you say to her or anyone like her? Our voice is valuable whether people listen or validate us or not. That is what I've learned. I grew up in a system where my voice was never heard. Never. Not ever. For any reason. And I think what we have to know going in, unfortunately, is using our voice, it's going to garner some backlash. It just is. But you have to be competent enough and strong enough with yourself, which is hard when we're beaten down, right? Literally and figuratively. If we self-silence, that is the greatest injustice. Our perpetrators, our family, our whoever, they want us silenced. We have to actively speak against that, knowing full well it's going to be hard. Knowing full well you're going to get backlash. However, the addendum to this, the very important footnote, is I don't recommend people doing it without a support. 
whether it's going to therapy or looking for domestic violence advocates, somebody who can be that person to help you in that process, because otherwise you're just going to feel so alone. You're not going to know how to process the triggers that come up, right? Because it really is, the emotions are similar to what is experienced during the trauma, right? But our bodies don't realize like, oh, well, this isn't then, this is now, but it feels the same, right? So I think my main caveat is you have to get yourself a plan to support yourself effectively before you take that step. Otherwise, I worry it could be harmful instead of helpful initially, if that makes sense. That makes sense. And it reminds me of something my therapist just said this week, because I I was asking her about social media and how to deal with that and that I want to be a voice for others and an advocate for others. And she said, you can't right now. Right. She said, you need to heal yourself and focus on yourself. And you can't put yourself in a situation that is re-traumatizing for you. She also gave me some other coping mechanisms. She was like, stop watching the true crime stuff right now. Mm -hmm. She gave me some books. She recommended some books, Radical Acceptance and Radical Compassion. So I just started Radical Acceptance last night. And she put me into this intense trauma recovery program. She officially diagnosed me with PTSD, which surprisingly I had not been diagnosed before with that because I never thought to bring up any of the essay that I had been through before. And I don't know why the domestic violence stuff wouldn't have triggered them to think that I could have PTSD from that, but they didn't. But just getting that validation and Mm -hmm. hearing that you have PTSD, this whole time I've been empathetic towards my ex, who is 100% disabled with PTSD from being a Marine and realizing that's why he did these things. And I think that kind of leads me into my next topic, which is us justifying and making excuses for those people who hurt us. And I left him for my daughter. I didn't leave him for me. And I don't know that I was ever strong enough on my own to do it. But when she was a baby, I said, I'm not going to let her grow up in this. And I'm doing this for her. And I think if any of these situations ever happen to her, and my therapist said this too, this is a good test. Say, if this happened to my daughter, would she be to blame? And it's like, no, obviously not. It's like, why do we have no compassion for ourselves in those situations and make excuses for the people who are hurting us? Because that's what society feeds, pushes down our throat. Society does not promote self-love, self-acceptance, being your own best advocate, right? And so that is... Such a good comparison. Like, look at someone you love. Look at a child. Would you tell them the things that you tell yourself? Probably not. Right. And in my practice, I would always say to people, don't you dare speak to yourself the way these people have spoken to you. You deserve better than that. Right. And so it's a process of we have internalized those voices of those who have hurt us. And we need to shed that and be our own number one fan and best advocate. But you said something really important that I just want to touch on for a minute, which is sometimes when we are stuck in our trauma, we cannot help others and we have to self-focus. When I was in the worst trauma period of my life, I had to step away from my practice. Now, it was for physical issues, but if I'm being honest, I couldn't have practiced anyway. Emotionally, I was not in that space. 
And so you have to be careful not to jump the gun on advocating for others before you're advocating and paying attention to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And I see that now. And so as much as I want to take the listeners on this journey with me of this like trauma recovery, and I plan to, I obviously have to make it known I'm not the expert and I can't heal. I get, I don't know, I guess, is it accurate to say I can't heal or help someone else? I feel like this is helping. This is going to help people, but I don't know. I don't don't know what to say. No, I can hear you struggling with it because again, especially women, we're natural helpers. We're, we're bred and taught to be wives and mothers and housewives and bots and blah, blah, blah. It is absolutely okay to say, I'm going to share my experience, strength, and hope that helps people. But otherwise, I can't help anyone but myself right now. That's appropriate. That is appropriate. It's good boundaries. It's self-care. This is not your responsibility. Your responsibility is, again, sharing your experience, strength, and hope, which you are and will absolutely help people, but taking care of you so that you can be the best because you deserve it. So it's okay sometimes when we can't help others, when we're not in the space. Use that time to get yourself to where you need to be, and then you can do all those great things that you want to do. But for now, that's okay. I mentioned some coping skills that my therapist had given me this week. Do you have any others you can share with anyone who might be just embarking on trying to heal from trauma? Yes, absolutely. I love a coping skill. So there's something called somatic exercises. You can Google this and look it up, but there's gentle stretches and movements and ways to move our bodies because trauma is stored in the body. And so there are these things that we can do if we're feeling triggered or our muscles are feeling tight because we're having a reaction to something. In fact, most people listening to this, like I recommend either closing your eyes, keeping them open, but going from head to toe and assessing, like, how does my head feel? Do I have a headache? How do my shoulders feel? Are they tight, right? So sometimes we have such an automatic trauma response. It first starts with understanding what's happening in our body, right? Which fortunately require, you don't have to pay anything to do this. You sit in a comfy chair, you get comfortable, and you just assess your body, number one. Number two, Progressive muscle relaxation is something that has been very helpful and efficacious to people dealing with trauma. So again, you can Google that and look it up. And I'm happy to do another episode specifically on this because I could talk about this for days. But I think self-care is important in terms of if you're having a tough day, do a facial or like an at-home one. I'm not saying we're not all rich. We can't just like just be blowing money on stuff. But whether it's an at-home facial or just like being under a weighted or heated blanket, breath work also for people who have a lot of trauma, breath work is hugely important, especially at night because the night is that scary space for a lot of folks, right? Where your head is just like and you just can't calm it down. So when that happens, what I recommend is it's called the 478 breathing trick. Do you know? I really yeah, love okay. it. Yes. Admittedly, um, actually, I don't practice it as much as I should, but I do love the concept. I'm glad what? you reminded me of it. That's okay. Yeah. So maybe this was just a helpful reminder. That's it. So the 478 breathing trick is really helpful. And it truly, when you use it, 
There's some science behind it that helps resets of basal vagal response and then also helps decrease heart rate and things like that. One last thing I'll say, so I don't yammer on forever about this, is grounding is also extremely helpful for people who are in an active trauma response, which there's fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. Those are the four trauma responses. Grounding is helpful when you're feeling so overwhelmed. You're just like, I don't know what to do. And it is sitting. It is, you look around. What do you see? Hear, smell, taste, and feel, right? So uh, looking around your room, it's like you can look at, okay, I see the paint on my wall. I see 75 ring lights in front of me. I see this, this chair. It feels comfy underneath me. So So those are things that we can actively do to help us in an active trauma response. And then the coping skills are going to adjust as your trauma recovery adjusts, right? I don't have to do as much of that somatic work anymore, but now I'm doing different work and using some different skills. So there's lots we can do. Never lose faith. There's so much we can do. I'm so glad you brought up self-care. And that makes me laugh a little bit because my previous therapist who I had before, the the one that I have now, similar to your previous one, could not help me. And I think that's actually a good point to make is keep trying because not everyone's the right fit. Don't think therapy isn't for you. But this woman would always, first of all, she was the one who told me I did not have ADHD and talked me out of it. And then when I got the diagnosis, the psychiatrist (laughs) was like, I can't wait for you to fire her and to tell her what you're (laughs) But the only thing she ever recommended I did was self-care. And I was like, fuck your self-care. I need help. It's not going to help me. So I'm so glad you're bringing that up because now... I see that helps. It helps if I take a bath. It helps if I take a walk. But that's only because I'm aware of what I'm even trying to heal. I was in denial or not aware of anything that I needed to fix prior. It was even before my ADHD diagnosis. So telling someone to do self-care before they even get to the bottom of what they're healing may not be effective. So I'm so glad I can Uh give that perspective to what you're saying. Because I think older listeners might remember me saying, I hate my therapist. She keeps telling me to do self-care. It's not getting me anywhere. And listen, I have to chime in here because as a therapist, I completely agree with what you're saying in that we have to trust our gut. If you're with a therapist who just isn't the right fit or they're not meeting your needs, I'm honest. I have met some of the best and some of the absolute worst therapist in the course of my career. And there are some people who should have never been allowed to graduate from their master's program, and they're just not good. And unfortunately, it's so hard because you work yourself up to go to therapy. You have these expectations and these hopes, and then you find someone who sucks, and it's so disheartening. So my message is that as a therapist, I'm validating that sometimes therapists are no good. And also sometimes they don't have a good understanding. We have to find therapists who are trauma-informed. And what that means is your therapist did not understand that you were in a fight, flight, freeze. You were in a mode. And self-care isn't going to do shit when you're in an active mode of survival. It's like having my arm cut off by a machete and someone put it saying, put a Band-Aid on it. Right. Well, that's not going to help. So having a trauma-informed therapist is super important. I fired my therapist. You fired your therapist. 
Sometimes you got to self-advocate and say, this isn't for me and move on. Can I just say a really interesting point is that often the people who have been hurt the most are the most wonderful souls. And you are one of them, right? To have integrity, to take your podcast so seriously, which I do too. I just feel, I just wanted to reflect that you have a beautiful soul. Most trauma survivors do are the most beautiful, wonderful, sweet humans. And that's the irony, right? So we deserve think, the best treatment and get the worst. Thank you. That's really good you to say. And I acknowledge you as well. And I think it's because we know what it feels like and we don't want anyone else to feel that way. That's right. That's exactly right. Truly. Yep. So I got a lot of questions. I picked out a few if we can get into some. First sure. one comes from an account called Bravo Rex. I don't know if you've heard of Oh, I know her. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Hi. Yeah, she's great. <laughs> she wants to know how to stay sane with the state of the world, especially if you're an empath, which just goes into what we just said. Yes. <laughs> a lot of people are very empathetic that have been through trauma. So. Yeah. And I will say sometimes I, I don't like advertising this because I don't know, it gets misunderstood, but I am an empath in that when my clients come in, I feel their feelings in my body and they're like, are you psychic? And it's like, no, I can tell by looking at someone, their emotions, where they're at. And so that is such a good question because yeah, the world is like on fire. So here are my suggestions or recommendations for that. I think keeping your circle small and healthy is really important. Now, the cons of doing what we do, right, is Instagram and social media is not really helpful or productive in my opinion in a lot of ways. I agree. Instagram is my only social media and I'm mm -hmm. on the fence of leaving Instagram. And the only thing that's keeping me there is like the positive glimmers that come through is like the people leaving me voice yeah. messages and DMs thanking me and just seeing that things that I've done can help others. That keeps right. me there. Or in a more selfish way is to advertise like, hey, there's a new podcast episode up. Like I get the whole marketing aspect of it. But other than that, Mm -hmm. I am so close to just closing down Instagram because it's so negative. It's so toxic. It's so bad. And I'm going to be real with you. I think about deleting mine on a daily basis. And I've talked with some people and they say, we understand, but your account helps me so much. So do what you have to do. So for me, that's why I continue to do it. And I think for you too, that's why we continue to do it. But I think if you have social media, you really have to tighten up who you follow, who follows you. People think for some reason on social media that like disrespect is acceptable online and it isn't. We can disagree. Disrespect is a wholly other animal. And just know your page is what you want it to be. Block liberally. So that would be my one suggestion on social media. Two is in your can I, wait, real... Can I ask you one question about that? Yes. So rather than engaging... Just block anything well, that, negative. So I have found this truly, this is what I do. If I get a 99% of my comments are really great and helpful and supportive, but the ones that aren't, I do a one comment policy where if they write a snarky comment, I write something not coming from a place of ego, right? I come from a place of this is my page. We're going to have some respect here. Help me understand more of what you're saying. And then their response tells me everything, right? 
So I don't typically respond more than once. I'm not going to argue back and forth. I don't recommend arguing with strangers, period. If I comment that one comment and then they come back with something reasonable, great. They're welcome to stay. If it's doubling down or just feels icky, I use my gut and my intuition to tell me, do I want this person a part of this community or not? And then lock or don't, right? People are going to misunderstand us. They're determined to do that. People who survive trauma, we tend to be over explainers, people pleasers. We don't want to feel like we're doing something wrong, but then we end up gaslighting ourselves into not having peace. So I recommend not doing that. And there's nothing wrong with blocking. Okay. No, that makes sense. And I've adapted to that as well. I just don't want the negativity. I follow a lot of different things that I'm interested in on Instagram. And one of them is Los Angeles and the city and what's going on with like crime and and the homelessness. And it's something that I'm actually passionate about fixing. Keep up on what's going on with this, right? So there's this one account that I follow that has all of these things. And I made a comment about crime in LA. First of all, I got over 300 likes for it in a matter of minutes. But Mm -hmm. then there was probably over 50 comments about Mm -hmm. it. And most Mm -hmm. of them were people who didn't agree with what I said, but just because they didn't agree with it, all of a sudden they had to attack my appearance saying I'm a dumb blonde and I I don't know anything and I can't speak on this topic saying that I'm out of touch. I live this like perfect Hollywood lifestyle. I'm out of touch. I don't know what's going on with the homeless issue. Just making assumptions based on my appearance or my intelligence level attacking me, making fun of me. But then it got really dark and some men were saying they were going to rape me. They were saying just awful things just because they didn't agree with me. And I'm like, that's the point where I'm like, this has become so dark that these people think that they are able to talk like this and that this is okay. This is abuse. This is abuse. It's triggering me. It's triggering other people who are probably reading it. And I just blocked. I blocked, blocked. I'm just like, I'm not even going to engage in that anymore. And I think it's good to remember, we're probably not going to change anyone's mind. We're definitely not going to change anyone's mind. Like not probably, definitely. Yeah. So it's a pointless expenditure of energy. I've learned this through animal activism. I'd rather focus my energy on those who are open and receptive and able to take their ego out of a situation and Mm -hmm. not be like, oh, my opinion on this is my personality. And I think that's dangerous. And those are the people you're not going to change. But I'll focus my energy on those who are open to changing. And that's a better use of my time and energy. If I just spent my my days arguing with people, I would be so drained to do actual work out there. So, well, that's exactly right. And truly, I would take it a step further and say, listen, because I'm a person who I have a little bit of an anarchist in me and I want a revolution and I want to change the world. And I, and trust me, so I have that. So my message to you and people listening is like, I can appreciate that LA page, right? It's important to you. But right now, is there anything you can really do about that? And think about how much that took from you, right? I'm actually having someone on my podcast in a couple of weeks. Her name is Mandy Slutsker, and she is a lobbyist in D.C. And she has a lot of insight into the things we can do locally to affect change at a local level, right? So part of what I'm going to do to help people with that question is like the world's on fire. What can we do? Well, we're going to talk about it. 
we're going to talk about how to get involved locally. And I would encourage you to not engage with that page. I mean, as hard as it might be, like, you've got enough going on. I'm not commenting anymore. And right. at first, I was like, I don't want to let these people silence me. In general, in a bigger picture, what is social media teaching our younger generation? It's teaching these people that if they comment, if they express their opinion, they're going to be bullied. So what does that tell them to do? To fit in, to not speak up or to agree with the crowd and to not have an independent thought. And I want to fight against all of that. So I'm like, I'm not going to people silence me. But I also acknowledge I need to take care of myself right now. They're strangers, whatever, like do what is best for me. And right. I don't need to put my opinion on this page anymore if it's going to end up with people saying they're going to rape me. Ugh. Well, and you just, here's the thing, Jamie, you can't be responsible for it either. Because when I hear in your voice, a lot of trauma survivors, myself included, we're justice warriors. We're Absolutely. like, no, we won't be silenced. But then it's like, we don't want to cut off our nose to spite our face because we're those justice warriors, right? So trust me, it's a fight I have internally with myself every day. But the answer truly is disengage. Only comment in communities where you're safe to do that, right? Like, for example, I create a community where people are safe to comment. And if someone's coming in being a problem, well, you have to go because I'm protecting this community. But I can only do that on my page. So it's not your job or responsibility to do that for others. And I'm grateful that you see that. Yeah. Well, let's go on to the next question. As, as much as I could actually talk about this topic forever, I want to get <laughs> some others in. So next one comes from another Bravo account. Bravo for the rest of us. Do you yes. Know? Okay. Love her. Yes. <laughs> she sent in some good ones. Let me try to pick my favorite one here. Okay. There's actually, you know what? I, I want to get to them all. So let's okay. keep our answers. as I'll be brief. Yes. Essay mm-hmm. and DB, how it affects people long-term. Oh, I know it's a long answer. How am I supposed to do this succinctly? Okay. If not dealt with, long-term effects are PTSD. 94% of women who are raped experience symptoms of PTSD two weeks following the incident. And then 30% of women report symptoms nine months after. So what we're looking at is the short-term acute effects versus the long-term effects. Okay. Long-term effects are going to be those your nervous system is dysregulated. You're going to experience somatic symptoms, difficulty sleeping, lack of appetite, difficulty with relationships, because how can we trust people when this is the kind of treatment we get when we speak our truth, right? So I guess that's the briefest way I can say that. Okay. And I have follow-up, but I'm not going to do it now. Maybe we can expand on these on another episode. Sure. Steps to take when you are a victim of SA or DB. Okay. Getting access to some sort of guidance around it, whether that be therapy, a domestic violence advocate, women's shelter resources, things like that. And I'm not saying everybody needs to be in a shelter, but the best way to address this is to have someone I just can't emphasize enough the importance of someone walking with you through the journey. Clients do all the work. I am honored to be a guide as they move through their process. But it starts with acknowledging that this isn't our fault. 
It's okay for me to get help. Let me do that. That's step one. And then number two, the step is like, okay, well, what kind of help do I want to get? I recommend therapy highly, but I understand that's not for everybody. It's not always accessible. So that's where an advocate might come in. Are there books and that you recommend? That is such a good question. I almost had a list prepared and then I did another podcast today and I forgot about it. So what I can commit to doing is books are so helpful when it comes to recovery from a lot of things. I will get a list together and I will create an infographic that you and I can both share. Awesome. Amazing. Yeah. Okay. And our last question, how to open up the dialogue? for people to speak about their experiences in DV or SA? There's different answers depending on what platform we're talking, right? If we're talking about just in your personal life, I think it starts with us talking to ourselves about this is going to be tough, but we can do this. We got this. It's like we all have this inner child that we need to attend to first and foremost. So that's an important part of the conversation. And then I think the second part is integrating trusted loved ones to be supports and to start to learn how to ask for what we need. Because if we leave it up to other people, they get overwhelmed by all the emotions and the ego of it and all this other stuff. So that would be my suggestions there. Do you find that it's the hardest to tell the people that we're the closest to? Like I, the yes. The last people I want to talk to you about this would be my family. And I right. part of it is I don't want to hurt them. I don't want them to experience hurt from what I've been through. But also embarrassment. It's hard. It would be hard for me to have this conversation with a family member. And as crazy as it is to say, it's easier for me to, to express this to thousands of people listening mm-hmm. than face to face with a family member. That is such an amazing point and a very common experience. And that's why I talk about the advocate, right? Whether it's a therapist or an advocate, domestic violence advocate, because it is a very human experience. It's easier to talk to someone who you don't really know. You don't really know me that well. I'm not your loved one. It is easier to do that because the stakes are lower, right? Because if I, if I dismiss you, well, who cares? Who am I? which by the way, I never would, but it's just an example. But for your loved ones, there is all this toxic guilt and shame about you're not responsible for their emotions, but you feel like you are, right? Our loved ones' experience of us telling them is for them to deal with and not for us to worry about. However, if that is preventing you from using your voice, then I do recommend getting that third-party helper who you can talk to Or that could be a place where starting to read a book about it is helpful, right? Because we can get a lot of validation and a lot of support just from that. And also sometimes family, when I talk about telling a supportive person, that doesn't always mean family. Yeah. And that's what I'm aware of. I don't think, and this is not to put down my family, but I don't think I'll get the response that I need from them. And I almost always set myself up for more hurt or more disappointment. By telling the wrong people. And that is so fair. And that is such a good point. You have an intuition of who, like, well, let me ask you, do you have an intuition about who are the best people to talk to about this? Do you have that intuition? 
my gut is just saying my therapist because I don't think, although I don't think friends have the experience to know what to say or do or to help. Yep, they don't. Um, And same with my family. So yeah, I mean, my instinct is just to some a professional. Yep. So so my message is, we have gut instincts that we ignore all the time, and that's the source of a lot of our issues as women. Your gut is never wrong. It's just about do you listen to it. Yeah. So for you, listen to your gut. Unfortunately, sometimes we wish family could be the people that we come to about this, but sometimes they're not, and sometimes, in fact, they're the last people that, you know, and they could have caused more harm than good. You've got to get reconnected with yourself and listen to that gut about how to move forward in the way that best honors you. Excellent answer. I'm going to move on to another person who sent in several good questions. We'll see how many we could get to. Her name is Shabana319. Do you think physical abuse and emotional abuse are equally damaging? A thousand percent. A thousand percent, first of all. With my practice, I look at everything as a spectrum, right? And so there are times I would almost argue that psychological abuse or emotional abuse can be more harmful long term because it chips away at your self-esteem and your self-image, right? Bruises heal. Yeah. Broken bones heal. But our psyche takes such a hit that it takes a long time to recover from it. So I, I would almost argue that sometimes the emotional can be worse. But yes, they're both equally terrible. Yeah. And unfortunately, I mean, it's there's no laws against emotional abuse. Is there? I mean, nope. Someone hits it's- you, you have recourse. Someone hurts you, damages you psychologically. What can you do? And this is for me where my platform becomes so important because there are perpetrators that know that and they're savvy. And then they use the system to further gaslight the victim. And it's just insanity. Okay. She has two questions I'm going to combine into one. So she was a therapist as well. However, she was still manipulated by a narcissist. And then her other question is, can intelligent, strong women fall prey to abusive or nar- narcissistic men? I think that's such an important question because I consider myself intelligent and I was sucked into this. So I want women to know it, it doesn't have anything to do with your intelligence level whatsoever. That's correct. 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 It has nothing to do with intelligence level. What it has to do with is these perpetrators sniff out our trauma, like truly like sociopaths, right? Like Ted Bundy could sense somebody who he could prey upon. And so I have met and I am, I'm very smart. I have degrees. I have credentials after my name. And that does not mean that I have been spared. So it is not an intelligence issue. It is these predators are good at preying. They're good at what they do. It has nothing to do with us or what anything you've done wrong or she's done wrong, they are predators who sense it and manipulate and take advantage. We both have been looking at the RAIN website. Do you want to maybe pull out some that you find important or interesting? Sure. Yes. Okay. So every 68 seconds, another American is sexually assaulted. That slapped me right in the face. Yeah. That is horrifying. One out of every six 
six American women has been the victim of an attempted or a completed rape in her lifetime? One out of six. Okay. Yes. I've, I've seen other stats, one out of five. And I think the important thing to mention here is think of all the people who aren't speaking up. So they're not even accounted for. And I would mm-hmm. say there's more that don't speak up than do. Oh, a thousand percent. And in fact, when I was looking at the research, by the way, I got it from Rain's website. And even Rain said they select the most reliable sources of stats for each topic. The primary data source we use is the National Crime Victim Survey, which requires self-reporting. And so what Rain said on their website is in the military, especially they have atrocious statistics because no one wants to come forward. So these statistics are the tip of the iceberg yeah. under the water of what it really is, truly. So if yes. you're, let's say you're with a group of five of your friends, there's six of you at minimum, on yeah. average, one of you has experiences, but the likelihood that it's much higher than that. Absolutely. Because if you think of you and your group of girlfriends, I mean, I'll think of my, it's more than just one. So, but one thing I found really gross is that, so a majority of child victims are 12 to 17 But of the sexual abuse cases reported to law enforcement, again, what's reported versus what happens, 93% of juvenile victims knew the perpetrator. So 59% were acquaintances, 34% were family members, and 7% were strangers. So what does this mean? This means we have an intergenerational trauma problem and not a crime problem. Interesting. It's the call is coming from inside the house is what I'm saying. Wow. That gave me chills. Yeah. Okay. Anything that we did not bring up or any last things that you think are important to mention before we wrap up? Well, it's important to mention that this is a heavy topic and I am so grateful for for you and for every single person listening to this, because this is not like a fun, kiki, bravo, shit-talking episode. This is real shit. And sometimes real stuff is really hard and it's painful and it isn't pretty. So I just thank people for hearing us, for taking the time. And the last message is just Please be gentle with yourselves. Being human is so hard, especially in the culture and the world we live in today. You are worth it. You are beautiful, amazing, wonderful. And just please keep in mind that you are worthy. That's my message. That's beautiful. I've been sitting here with my daughter's little bear on my lap. Mm-hmm. I'm going I'm to cry again, but I just want to say that this was not easy. And you're right. It's not a fun episode. So thank you to all the listeners who are still here listening. I'm doing this for my daughter, but I'm doing this for all the survivors as well. I believe you. I see you. I hear you. I'm here for you. Thank you to to you, Melissa, and to those listening, because without this podcast, I don't think I would have the um, self-reflection to even be where I am right now in my healing. So thank you to all who's listening. And I was just reminded that in my, sorry, my voice is cracking. In my podcast description, the last sentence is a line from a song by My Chemical Romance. And it, it says that the goal of this podcast is to help others defeat demons and the non-believers. 
Right. Together, you and I, yeah, we as a team, which by the way, specifically thank you to you because again, what you've shared today is it's brave, it's courageous, and it is gut-wrenching. I cannot emphasize that enough. I can feel it in you. I can see it in you. And I've worked with survivors and it's a brave, amazing thing to do. And I think that because of your willingness to go out there, I think today we've helped people and wow, isn't that a wonderful thing? So amazing. Thank you so much for being here. Where can people find you? Okay. So people can find me on Instagram at your bish therapist, respectful comments only, please. <laughs> and that's um, people- B-I-S-H. Yes. Thank you. Y-O-U-R-B-I-S-H therapist on Instagram. I also have a YouTube channel of the same name, Your Bish Therapist. My podcast is free everywhere you listen to podcasts. And the YouTube channel is the full video and audio. And then the podcast is just audio. And I talk a lot about similar to what we did today. I talk about tough topics. I talk about things that aren't super fun or uplifting, but they're important conversations to be had. So if you're interested in that, I have two seasons of tons of episodes from Bravo Liberties to True Crime, Gypsy Rose, Twin Flame, Union. The list is endless. So please check that out. Okay. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. And thank you guys for listening. When I was a young boy, my father took me into the city. To see a marching band He said, son, when you grow up Would you be the savior of the broken The beaten and the damned He said, will you defeat them Your demons and all the non-believers The plans that they have made
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for Season 9. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today.